Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley, narrated by the author, with original music by Michelle Germouches. Introduction The Coast to Coast Path was the brainchild of perhaps the most famous Lake District fellwalker of all time. From the moment Alfred Wainwright gazed upon the majestic beauty of the Cumbrian landscape, he knew he'd found his natural place in the world. Not only did Wainwright explore every inch of this outdoor nature lover's paradise, but he generously shared his experience through his handwritten guidebooks, which he illustrated with delightfully detailed pen and ink drawings and maps. In later life, he toyed with the idea of establishing a public footpath that traversed the entire north of England from the Irish Sea in the west to the North Sea on the east coast. After several recce's, he blazed a trail and made a gift of his find to the world's outdoor fraternity by penning a specific illustrated guidebook for the path. Walking Wainwright's coast-to-coast path has become a must-do adventure for tens of thousands of walkers, trekkers and hikers from around the world, which included me and my mate Peter, who lived 12,000 miles away in Australia. Peter and I had worked together and retired at about the same time. Oddly, we both found retirement to be a sort of hanging around, uninspired existence. Peter and his wife Colleen had arranged a long holiday touring Europe, part of which was set aside for Peter to walk Wainwright's coast-to-coast path. As I planned to be in the British Isles at the same time, I was invited to tag along. Peter divided the 191-mile trail into 18 day walks, which he considered achievable even for retired office workers of modest fitness like we two aged grumps. And what a life-changing escapade it proved to be. The experience of true freedom one lived each morning when moving on and leaving behind what had gone before was indescribably liberating and uplifting. Living in the present, the now, amid some of the world's most stunningly beautiful countryside, supplanted the retirement blues with a persistent and vibrant zest for life. It was this unexpected and vital side effect of my first long-distance walk that drove me to write this book. I hope my efforts will inspire readers and listeners to reap the invigorating, life-affirming benefits that following in Wainwright's footsteps can impart as it did for Peter and me. A mighty force evolved to refresh and revitalise, and which through the passing of time has not diminished, but strengthened. Chapter 1. Episode 1. A quote from Mark Twain, 1835 to 1910. Twenty years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream. Discover. Brisbane to St. Bees. 12,000 miles and no walking. The doings of Miles Morland were to blame. He was a banker who gave up an insider's privileged position in high finance to start a new life by walking across France with his wife. I read Morland's account of their exploits, then passed the book on to a mate. 
Peter was so inspired by the story that he started to prepare for a long-distance walk of his own. We were both seeking a remedy for the retirement blues, and Peter's plan to walk the coast-to-coast path across the north of England was perhaps just the tonic we needed. However, this solution wasn't a local undertaking. Our coast-to-coast adventure didn't start in the Lake District, where the path begins, but 12,000 miles away in Brisbane, Australia, where we lived. Peter was the driving force behind the walking trip. He'd researched the trail and made all the arrangements. My poultry contribution was to be there with a decent pair of walking boots and enough cash to pay my way. I'd had it easy and knew it. About three years earlier, in 2002, I'd snatched voluntary redundancy as soon as it became available. That decisive action followed years of equivocation over my future in the thankless and despised field of compliance. At about the same time, Peter threw in the towel as a contract pipework designer. Peter and his wife moved to the bush, an hour or so's drive out of Brisbane. There was no sea or tree change for me. I remained in town, close to my daughters and their families. Peter and I both experienced a similar response to being without paid employment. Much to our surprise, we found retirement to be an inadequate and perhaps even purposeless lifestyle. There was no shortage of things to do. The difficulty was drawing up the enthusiasm to do them. We both shared a hobby whilst working. Peter painted architectural and landscape watercolours. I'd worked on large experimental oil paintings. Since leaving work, I'd been unable to push paint around, and strange as it may seem, Peter developed the same dogged genius for inaction that had stymied my Van Gogh-like ambitions. Over the years, I've completed hundreds of day walks, but never before had I tackled a long-distance trek. The coast-to-coast path crosses England from the seaside village of St. Bees on the Cumbrian coast to Robin Hood's Bay on the central Yorkshire coast. The path was the brainchild of Alfred Wainwright, a renowned fell walker and author of many illustrated books about walking in and around the Lake District. For several years he pondered upon a route that crossed the country and did not trespass on privately owned land, nor violate local bylaws. After several reconnaissance outings, he established a path and published a guidebook in 1972. The route, now known as Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, has become one of Britain's most popular long-distance walks, attracting hikers from around the world. The daunting prospect of trekking the 191 miles of the coast-to-coast path had to be taken seriously, particularly by the uninitiated, which included Peter and me. And that's why, about six months later, we were on the other side of the world, on the Isle of Man, getting ready to sail across the Irish Sea in search of adventure. I'm Manx, that is, a native of the Isle of Man, and it was there that Peter and I had arranged to meet before travelling to St. Bees to commence the walk. It's only about 40 miles as a seagull flies from the Isle of Man to St. Bees, but it took about eight hours for us to travel to St. Bees by ferry and car. Thanks to an overnight storm, the pre-dawn air was clear, clean and crisp. A good day for a fresh start, a renaissance. I rechecked my gear for the umpteenth time, and satisfied, was ready for off. Along the wide sweep of Douglas Bay, the tide was full in. The skimming rays of sunup, low and close to the horizon, transformed the oily sea into a shimmering silver mirror. I breathed deeply, 
the chilled sea air with its familiar iodine whiff of wet seaweed and salt. About the harbour, the atmosphere lost its freshness, adopting a crusty commercial flavour, the signature tang of seaports the world over. An exotic fusion of wet hemp, paint and tar, mingled with the bitter reek of bilge water, hot engine oil, rotten fish and stale beer. The whole concoction laced through with the lingering caustic taste of diesel exhaust and belched tobacco smoke. Secure in the harbour, lashed tight to the quayside, gleaming in the traditional livery of white, red and black, was the ferry, Ben McCree. After checking in, and having no wish to become an unwitting candidate for extraordinary rendition, I thought it wise to seek security clearance for my tubular tungsten-tipped walking stick in the prevailing political climate of fundamentalism and extreme official responses, it seemed imprudent to make assumptions about what might be classified as a weapon of mass destruction and what was merely aluminium tubing. Is this style of hiking pole all right to go abroad? I asked the security man, identified by his uniform of high-visibility orange oilskins. Too true, yes, sir, was the official response. Believe you me, in the Isle of Man there's no limit to the number or variety of walking sticks the cripples or the elderly can carry at any time. Strange as it may seem, in the remote and tranquil setting of the Isle of Man, enforced security for those arriving or departing had been particularly onerous for nearly half a lifetime. The crackdown started after the Derry Civil Rights Marches in the late 1960s. Once the Troubles in Northern Ireland slithered from beneath the fractured rock where they had lain festering for many years, the explosive mix of social preferment, political ambition, and more recently, hard man greed, ensured tight security all round. The Isle of Man is the ideal entry point for IRA terrorists en route to England, and so was closely watched by British security. Before arriving on the Isle of Man, Peter and Colleen had spent several weeks holidaying in the Cotswolds and Ireland. The eighteen days upon which we were about to embark was only one feature of their tour. Once we completed the trek, they were off by train to Sicily, stopping where chance took them. As soon as the boarding announcement was made, we moved quickly to get to the front of the mob of foot passengers being herded through the security station. Once aboard, we easily navigated our way through the maze of clanking steel companionways and passages towards the quiet room. Our goal was the large saloon that overlooks the ship's stern, which is a sanctuary of calm amongst the excited hustle and bustle of shipboard life. Most passengers were bikers, not hard-eyed hell's angels, but soft-spoken enthusiasts returning home from the Max Grand Prix motorcycle racing, the clubman's version of the famous TT races. In no time, the quiet room was stacked with motorcycle paraphernalia. Passageways quickly became obstacle courses that were sure to spice things up if we had to abandon ship in a hurry. The commercial life of the ship kicked into top gear as soon as the mooring ropes were let go. A blaring announcement wrecked the dreamy atmosphere of the saloon. We were harangued by a tirade about perfume, children overboard, beer, sinking, and all manner of things. Little by little, the air in the quiet room became soupy, stale, and stifling, leaving many passengers lolling in their seats like the doped inmates of a ruthlessly run nursing home. 
Some aboard, like Peter and Colleen, remained sparkling and alert. They'd had the sense to take a turn topside in the blustery sea air. After four hours at sea, we arrived at Haysham, a seaport on the west coast of England, about forty miles south of our ultimate destination, St. Bees. Car passengers should make their way down the blue stairs to their vehicles in preparation for disembarkation. Foot passengers are requested to remain seated. A thickly accented Irish voice barked at the droopy throng. After what seemed like an eternity, foot passengers were let loose to make their way down the red stairs to go ashore on the port side of the vessel. Being unable to distinguish port from starboard inside the ship, we were swept along and down in a crush of shuffling passengers eager to find stairs of any colour, just so long as they could get off the boat and into the fresh air. Later, several decks below, Peter, Colleen and I broke free from the mob and found ourselves lost in the empty vehicle hold. We trudged forward and eventually stumbled upon the shoreside gangplank. By the time we collected our baggage and phoned the hire car company, we were the only passengers left in the terminal. Driving through the northwest of England, it was easy to believe that the countryside had changed little in hundreds of years. It was a picture of rural tranquility, with sleepy villages of traditional houses set among stretches of wooded farmland and hedged fields in which prime sheep and cattle quietly grazed. St. Bees, the seaside village from where our walk would start, is a mile or two along the Cumbrian coast from an industrial site that has been the centre of controversy for decades. The Sellafield complex is one of the world's principal nuclear reprocessing plants and the biggest employer in the region. In a tangle of pipework, tanks and towers, spent uranium is processed into reusable nuclear fuel. The plant is so large that it is clearly visible from the Isle of Man nearly 40 miles across the Irish Sea. Over the years, there have been numerous incidents with radioactive substances being vented into the atmosphere or were discharged into the sea. On one occasion, a particle of pure plutonium was found irradiating an employee's lawn. The British government, reportedly, has in storage 160 billion pounds worth of radioactive elements, including 100 tonnes of plutonium. Most is kept at Sellafield. With such a huge quantity of hazardous material concentrated in so small an area, it is little surprise that the site is well protected from sabotage or terrorist attack. What was totally unexpected was the improbable means of surveillance that cruised a few hundred feet overhead. It was a Canberra bomber, a plane that had first proved its worth during the Korean War in the early 1950s. I assumed that the aviation veteran was on the lookout for unscheduled or suspicious planes approaching a restricted airspace around the nuclear stockpile. After all, it wasn't that long ago when Libyan terrorists brought down Pan Am Flight 103 on Lockerbie. Was it mere coincidence that the small market town is less than 50 miles from Sellafield? When we arrived at St. Bees, the air was heavy and humid, and tasting of salt from the Irish Sea that lapped the nearby shore. It was bright, but the sun had taken on a disquieting, brittle-edged quality, so common at the seaside, late on summer afternoons. 